Welcome to the Surrender Podcast. Surrender is a collective of Christian groups and organisations from across Australia. We work in unity to share Jesus' call to seek his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. We create spaces for the sharing of stories that motivate, support and equip people to love their neighbour, share good news and live justly, both locally and globally. Please note, Surrender provides spaces for conversation and storytelling and does not necessarily endorse the personal views of any one presenter. This is a panel conversation entitled Global Neighbours. It's facilitated by Tim Johnson from Tier Australia and features Andrew Starr from International Justice Mission, Peter Smith from InterServe and Joe Knight from Tier Australia. In it they explore what it means for us living as neighbours in a global village with people from the developing world. They discuss what it means for us as followers of Jesus who are called to love these neighbours, to learn how to act justly and love mercy in a global context. This conversation is going to be all around being a global neighbour. Um, and so if you're wanting to have that conversation, please feel free to join us. For those of you I don't know, my name's TJ and I work for TIA. I'm going to kind of be facilitating hosting this conversation. Um, we're going to be looking at what it means to love our neighbour um, and what it means to engage with uh, our go- global neighbours um, and, and how we do that day to day and how we live, how we respond vocationally, um, also from a kingdom perspective, what it, how does our theology inform our response. The way this is going to work though is we're not going to have five dot point questions that we're going to work through and dole out wisdom. We want to actually have a bit of dialogue between you as listeners and, and partakers in this conversation and, and we recognise that there's there's a shared wisdom in the room um, and that actually our response from a global level we want to normalise, not actually professionalise. Um, and I think that's actually really important to kind of begin with. So before these guys introduce themselves, I'm just going to quickly pray. Um, and then at certain times I'm going to stop and if you have some questions, feel free to just yell them out and we'll have a conversation about that question and then we'll try and move through it so it's not really boring. Um, cool. Not that you guys are going to be boring. <laughs> No pressure, you've got to entertain now. (laughs) Lord God, we just uh, firstly want to approach you with a great deal of humility and a great sense that we have a great privilege of knowing you and walking in your ways. Lord God, I pray as we unpack a conversation on what it means to be people who live in a world of uh, chaos, Lord God, that you compel us to respond in love, that you compel us to respond so that we may love well, Um, And so, Lord, as we share this conversation together, may we respect one another um, and may we really honour you in this process. In your name, amen. What I might do just to start, there should be a microphone on the table. Um, Andrew, if you want to kick us off, just share a bit about who you are and where you're from. Um, Yeah, that'd be good and then you can pass it down. My name is Andrew and I work with an organisation called International Justice Mission. Um, I have... Two beautiful kids, wonderful wife, and before I was with IJM, I've been with IJM for about two years. I spent before that, I spent twelve years in Central Asia, uh, doing mission and development work. So, and I'm not an expert. Well, I'm the only non-lawyer here, I think. No, 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 no. <laughs> oh, you're not. I'm also not a lawyer. Okay. <laughs> okay good. Um, um, yeah, my name's Peter and Prue and I have um, been with InterServe for the last 20 years uh, and we've worked on and off in Egypt doing community development work, um, 
with disabled, um, also media work as well um, in that part of the world. Hello, and I'm Jo. I, um, I work with TIA. I head up advocacy at TIA. Um, and my background is, is very much Australian-based and um, working with refugees as a lawyer um, and managing a community centre um, to do with refugees and settlement. And yeah, more recently, um, different, I guess, tools in the toolbox to do with advocacy and grassroots um, empowerment so that each of you can effectively lobby for change and do things around change. Fantastic. Um, and I'm TJ, and I also work with TIA. Uh, I work with churches, kind of unpacking um, theologically what it means for the church to respond to global issues, um, particularly injustice, and how we kind of begin that journey here within the Australian context. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, a real privilege to kind of be able to share this space with you guys. So I thought as we begin, like global neighbour and thinking globally, just to begin with is incredibly complicated. Like, there's so many different angles and pathways this conversation can go. But I thought just to kind of kick the conversation off, we begin uh, from your perspectives. What is a global neighbour? And, and particularly, how does that intersect with faith? Feel free to just jump in. I think um, the thing that's happened more recently in our history is the fact that, as gl that the... The world has come to us, you know, the, or the world has shrunk in so many different ways. If you, I was just looking at this theologically and, and biblically, and in the Old Testament, you know, the people of God were called to be good neighbours to their neighbours around. In fact, a lot of what God expected of His people of God was tied up in the way that He, that the people of God were supposed to interact with their neighbours. But you know, in that situation, the world was much smaller. We now have a bigger challenge, um, but we ha also have bigger resources to meet that challenge because the whole world has come to us and, and we are able to go to the whole world. We are able to communicate with the whole world so much more easier. But as Christians, I think our responsibility, though, is even greater then to learn about how we should be a good neighbour to our people um, or to the people that we are in connection with and that generally these days as I say means almost the whole world so you know it, it, it's quite complex but I also think we've got better tools to manage the complexities that are there as well yeah I very much see it um, starting from the sort of first principle of, of Jesus calling us to love our neighbor and that your first hat that you put on is is as a follower of Christ who doesn't see uh, a boundary that stops at the edge of Australia. Um, that, that that means we are all made in the image of God, so therefore to, to love your neighbour wherever they may be. And, and, and looking at Christ's example of both being in relationship and getting to know and understand someone's story and context, um, and also challenging the structures and the systems of injustice. So um, I think we can't... Like love is an indifference, so to love our neighbour is not to be indifferent to what's going on with people's lives um, and enjoying that, um, you know, the, the cheap clothing or the different tr things that come with globalisation and without um, digging a bit more and saying, well, I'm not going to just be indifferent and sort of put my head in the sand about this, but I want to learn more and then from that take some action. Um, it's not always possible to literally be in relationship with someone 
um, around the world, but um, there are stories and there are ways that you can genuinely engage in those, um, those areas as well as learn you know, the bigger picture and, and then join in with something that is trying to ta tackle that, that structure of injustice, so be moved to action. Um, that's where I sort of see that, that all sort of sense of connectedness. That's, that's definitely a framework or a, a word that I think comes up a lot. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, I think the thing for me is um, with being a global neighbour and something that I'm working through personally at the moment is um, a bandwidth issue, really, uh, just in terms of the, the deluge of information that we get around stuff that's happening in the global village. And so I think, I think for me, uh, being a global neighbour involves guarding your heart um, in maintaining love because uh, the, the challenge to not harden up and not grow indifferent to the, you know, the, just the multiplicity of issues that are tugging at your attention and things, I think is a real one. So, but I, I also think that God's actually equipped us to do that. And I think part of it is community um, and part of it is, as, as Joe was saying, it's relationship and also focus and um, you can't, you can't, and, and I think for me, there's, there's quite a joy in actually understanding, that, like rejoicing in our limitations as well, that we're people who can't do everything, but we have a great God, and I think that's part of being a global neighbour as well, rejoicing in his ability and our limitations, not seeing our limitations as, as an issue, but actually a strength in that sense, so, yeah. It's cool. Yeah. And there's definitely a sense there's like themes that come up there of loving neighbour, um, of proximity, of closeness, and and how that's radically changed in the last sort of 50, 60 years, um, all of a sudden gives us a greater sense of responsibility in terms of how we live and how we respond. We can't really kind of just close our eyes and ignore specific issues that are taking place around our world because they're on our doorstep and the way that we live actually affect them. Um, I'm, I'm thinking particularly in the way that we see in Jesus and the way he lived, we see... We often talk about loving neighbour as the face-to-face -face stuff. And obviously, doing that in a global sense is incredibly complicated, other than Skype. Um, but I'm also aware that Jesus challenged the systems, structures, paradigms of his day that oppress people, that ostracise, marginalise, alienated people. And I'm aware that in our 21st century context, there's numerous um, different frameworks that do the same thing. And maybe particularly from your stories, experiences, work that you've done, what are some of those systems that you see affecting people in our world? Um, one of the things I really love about um, the sort of lobbying for change that I get to do is that the priorities that we have is based on what our partners are saying in um, the developing world. So um, we um, particularly lobby around um, aid funding and... Um, also climate related issues and um, also issues to do with inequality. But for example, let me talk about the um, climate related issues. So it's not necessarily the most popular thing to try and talk to Australian Christians about to sort of link your faith and issues of climate and the way your lifestyle here is impacting people who are very vulnerable overseas. But trying to make those connections and being committed to that and lobbying around that is because our partners are saying this is affecting us the most. So for us it's that sort of um, starting with not necessarily what's the most winnable campaign or um, but, but what is a priority to those that we're trying to serve um, overseas in our, in our work. So 
So that is, um, I guess, one, one way that I really like that in my work I get to, to take that priority or that lead from, from our partners overseas. Yeah, well, with the organisation that I work with, International Justice Mission, our focus is on violence and the issue of violence. Um, and I think for me, that, like I first encountered that when I was working in Kazakhstan and we were in a, a city that was very cold in the winter um, and the, the homeless people would sort of try to keep warm by um, trying to sleep in the basements or on the city heating pipes and a local charity came to us and and said, would you help us set up a soup kitchen? And so we did that. And for the first three weeks, it was going swimmingly. The soup was good. The homeless were ostensibly happy. And we were a nice NGO trying to share Jesus' love with them, etc. And then at the third week in, um, the number of homeless people coming to that soup kitchen just dried up. And so we asked around, you know, was it the soup? No, it wasn't the soup. Um, and... Um, what we found was that basically the local police had ringed the access points to the soup kitchen. And so what they were doing was they were just bundling the homeless people into their vehicles and taking them off to their building sites and forcing them to work without exit. And so we were this nice little Christian NGO. <laughs> so what do, you, what do you do when the police are doing that? Uh, you pray, okay. Um, but what, what do you do with that issue of systemic violence? And uh, so at that point, I didn't know about IJM, I now do. <laughs> and that's actually what IJM does. We, we break, we change the system, we end that systemic violence. But um, so that, that, that issue is an issue for 4 billion people. Um, so that's, yeah, that's a global issue that is very prevalent in our village. So, yeah. Can you, just before you pass on, you said you break the system. Or change the system. Yeah, hopefully change it. If Not I said break, broke, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, then, then we're probably doing our job incorrectly. Change. Yeah. How do you do that? What does that look like? How do like? we do it? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, how do we do it? We do we do four things. So we always work in partnership with local authorities, and we rescue victims from violent injustice. So we rescue people out of slavery, trafficking, police brutality situations like that. Um, then we uh, restore victims. So we have an aftercare program. Um, and we, but we also put the perpetrators of that crime behind bars because we see that's essential to breaking that cycle of, of oppression. Um, and all that we do, we, as I said, we do with local authorities and that basically means that we work with them to strengthen the justice system. So if the police don't know how to investigate, we train them to, to investigate. If um, social workers don't know how to provide aftercare, we strengthen that. Um, and through that, the system changes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, another um, area of, um, of a system that affects people very deeply in much of the developing world, at least, is corruption. I mean, it happens everywhere, um, for sure. It's just that we have laws that make you more likely to be caught. Um, but research has shown that I think two-thirds of people will act in a corrupt manner if they're given the opportunity to. So I think that you know we can't stand on our high horse and take the high moral ground on that because I think we would do it if we could get away with it too. Um, at least as a society, hopefully we don't as believers, but uh, as a society we would do that. Um, but corruption is just a massive problem at, um, at all different levels and it is, there are often complex systems created to keep the status quo for people. And um, 
that was one of the things that we faced with a lot in working in Egypt, where since the, the revolution that happened there in 2011, the, um, the public service has broken down since then and is still being rebuilt. Um, probably currently it's looking like it's being rebuilt in a way that was worse than it was before. Um, but it has revealed so many systems within systems in place to keep injustices happening. And um, it's very difficult to work in those environments because everyone has a vested interest in keeping that, keeping the status quo because they're getting something personally out of it. And um, I think that one of the things that we need to take on as believers is we need to become less risk averse. There needs, to be in a, there needs to be a sense in which we are willing to take risks at times in order to challenge those systems of injustice. Um, even if it's just the risk of us not having as much money as we have because we're giving some away to somebody who's helping do this, you know. I'm not necessarily talking about personal risk, but that is involved as well for those of us who are um, willing to, to live overseas and challenge those things more directly. There is a sense of risk that God calls us to take no matter what we are, what else we're called to do. That, that's called to it. Thanks. Just with the person next to you, I want you to kind of spend 30 seconds really quickly. What are some of the other structures, frameworks, paradigms that you see in our world that entrench or ostracise marginalised people? And then we'll just quickly come back. The question again for those who... We're distracted by really cute kids, right? Got you, uh, What are some of the structures, frameworks, um, powers in our world that ostracise or marginalise people? Just coming back, what were some of the things people identified? Just yell them out. Or you identified none, and this is very awkward. Gender? Gender? Yep. What, what do you mean? Okay, cool. Yep. What's the one you said? Language, yep. Definitely be a bit of a barrier in terms of in relationship and... Yep. Culture. Sorry? Culture. Culture, yeah. Do you want to unpack that briefly for me? What do you mean by that? Sure, yeah, yeah. So I learn behaviours, customs and ideas. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Any others? Yep. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And it can kind of feel incredibly overwhelming when we identify all of these different, like, structures and, and frameworks and paradigms and situations that people are in and how we respond, possibly. Particularly when we live at a distance... Um, and I think like that's probably my main question to you now, is we identify these sorts of things, but we also are also very situated in a specific context here in Australia um, with our own customs, cultures and norms um, and with our own beliefs and attitudes. Uh, what does it mean for us to even begin to respond? Like where do we start? I think one of the most obvious ones is actually in choices in what we buy because it, we live in a capitalistic society that has choices about what we buy. And so the whole value system of our whole 
society is based around making money and making the most money as possible for everybody, for individuals and for companies and um, the whole structure is, is based around that. And if the, if the core value is making money, that's a very different core value than what our Christian faith should be. And often, very often, those two things completely clash. And we can affect that by the choices that we make when we buy things. Um, and that's something we, do, we can do every single day of our life without even um, you know, putting ourselves at risk or without even you know, doing anything else. Just the choices in, in how we buy, we can do that. So I think that's something very easy um, for us to think about. And we, we have the tools to make those choices, even though it might sound a bit bewildering as to how we do that and how we make those choices. I think that they are getting increasingly easy and they are there. So I don't think that's much of an excuse anymore. Yeah, in my own story, I, I think I, like I, I sort of began things as a teenager and um, my faith and awakening to sort of God's heart for justice very much were intertwined. So, so wrestling with what is God placing on your heart? Because I do think we're wired up differently that um, there will be certain issues of injustice that will cut you to the heart. So listening, learning to listen to what is really moving you and not um, don't try and silence that, but to, to be listening to that. But also I'm a firm believer in that, that God has created you with... Um, with talents and passions and if you tune them in the direction of his heart for justice he will make good use of that so so in in the the movement that will start to um see sort of justice sought there will be different characters playing different roles and and all of them are valuable and they're going to be different so i grew up in a church and um many of the people um from that that sort of church are, are all sort of part of the surrender Sort of tribe, um, but the path I took in pursuing justice was different to what many that I grew up going to church did. Um, so I was a kid that went to private school and and loved learning, and I went to uni to pursue things and really went for the big picture world um, of sort of world politics and big picture issues. Where um, my friends at church were really good at sitting and talking with someone and meeting their needs right there, and that's sort of led to a different sort of um, world of discipleship and lifestyle and living simply in community with people. And we're both pursuing justice and seeking after God, um, but using the different ways we're wired up, using it differently. So my own journey has been grappling and at different times and different seasons, working within the system for justice, using whatever skills or context God is um, sort of putting on my heart and I am pursuing or opening doors and opportunities. So. For example, as a lawyer within refugee law, um, feeling very strongly that these laws that we, we see in Australia will go down in history like the white Australia policy and we will be ashamed if we didn't do something. And so going, well, I, I'm studying law, I can do something about that and working within that system, but also getting to the point and going, oh gosh, I'm, I need to throw some rocks from outside the system and then having a season being more outside that system. Um, so I do think God will work work differently and someone like, like Matt's here and Love Makes A Way is playing a certain role in changing, for example, the refugee landscape. But you need people doing both. You need people throwing rocks from outside the system and, and for the person whose actual case needs solving then and there, someone who has those skills and ability to solve that particular situation. So God will use you if you 
um, if you're open to it. Yeah, of course you can. Okay, jump in. Um, I'm sorry, I missed your name. Cool. Peter, I'm really glad you raised the topic you did because I, I had a question around that. And it's around the um, purchasing goods and items from you know the developing nations. Um, on the one hand, we hear from some sources that globalisation has, as much as it's wreaked havoc on the environment and, and plastics everywhere, um, but it, you hear from some sources that it's, it's, it has one, one effect is that it's dragged very under, you know, impoverished and underdeveloping nations out of abject poverty and given them some sort of cash flow, I guess, or, you know, they're starting to participate in the developed world. Um, my question is really around that balance of, in, in buying $2 plastic junk from the, the cheap shop, um, that, that's probably come from, you know, a factory in a sweatshop in China or whatever, uh, where there's probably not the same standards of uh, recognition of workers and workers' rights and so on. By doing so, are we are we supporting a system that is, you know, that's under par, or are we actually allowing that country to, in desperation, drag themselves up to try to compete or at least to raise the bar of their own, you know, GDP and, and all that sort of stuff to gradually improve the the overall circumstances of that country. Could you comment on that? And anyone else? Yeah, that can be a little bit um, a little bit complicated, but it, I think that there is there are still ways to to know that things are provided and and made fairly. Um, Increasingly, I think it, it has been more difficult in the past, but there's more scrutiny on how things are done. And um, just to give you an example, I don't know if you've heard of Fairphone. A, a group of, um, of Dutch students got together, I, th I think as part of a postgraduate research project, to work out whether they could design a mobile phone that could be built using fairly traded products right through it. Um, and they did. And in fact, they were so successful, they were given money to develop that phone and they're now into this, I think there's their second um, version of the phone. And what they really proved was that they could build a mobile phone that cost the same as anybody else's mobile phone, but was made with completely fair, fairly traded products. Um, so they ensured that all of the, the, the metals that went, for instance, into the phone actually came um, from uh, situations where the, the mining was done in a fair way and where people were paid and had proper conditions and that kind of thing. So I, we need to find ways to constantly put pressure on companies to ensure that they're doing it. And I think that we can do that as a voice even here in Australia by um, having those kind of voices so that they ensure that it happens. You know, the, the fallout from that uh, fire in Bangladesh that killed a lot of um, garment workers and how much pressure that put on people. And it, it became apparent that a lot of the companies, even, even buyers here in Australia, were not even considering that as an issue when they source their products. Um, hopefully it, it doesn't take um, many tragedies for that kind of thing to happen, but I think there's a growing awareness of that. So I think we can put pressure on companies to ensure that that is happening, that it is f that they are being paid fair wages and have fair conditions in their context. That will be different 
from ours for sure. Um, I think that when things are ridiculously cheap, I think we have to question it easily. Um, like I'm not really sure about this, but when you can buy a drill from Bunnings for $20 with all of that stuff in it, how they can get that into your hands for $20. I haven't researched that particular one, but I can't see how you could do that in a fair way, you know. Um, and certainly, you know, there's been a lot of uh, um, publicity with um, Apple and iPhones and the promises that they had made to ensure that things were made fairly. Um, you know, when they're making, I think it's 60% profit on every single unit, and and yet some of the things that have come out about how they're made. So, you know, I think I think there are ways that we can do that, and you know, both both are true. We we, we can get things uh, cheaper that help lift people out of poverty, but there are caveats around that. So I don't know if anyone else has got. Yeah, like I would very much characterise um, the era that we had things like the Millennium Development Goals as, as the best of times. We've seen the best of times and the worst of times because, as you said, um, environmentally it hasn't been a, something that's been valued as, as development has, this has been pursued. And we have the beginning of a new era with um, the Sustainable Development Goals, the Global Goals, which, which sort of say, moving forward, we need to, we need to develop and both the developed and developing world live within the planetary boundaries. We need to recognise that as development has been occurring and um, we've gone for economic growth, that it's been um, at the cost of things. So inequality within nations is, is at its worst level, where you see some of the great powers like China and India growing and huge middle classes rising, but um, still people living in extreme poverty. So the inequality within nations the planetary boundaries as well as um, continuing to tackle and take seriously extreme poverty. And when the world only talks about, and if you listen, um, we're coming up to a federal budget, um, if you listen to our politicians, you would think that the only thing that matters is economic growth. But as Christians, we should say, well, that's not necessarily God's half. Um, it's a much fuller, rounder vision of what a full good life and world should look like that is not just purely economic growth. So that then shifts what does that mean in the lifestyle choices we make, what does that mean in the calls for change and justice that we make, how do we coordinate them so they actually have any impact, that sort of thing. Yeah, can, can I just say, I, I think that we as Christians need to be prepared to pay for social justice because everything else in our world is a matter of economy and money really, at least in our Western world. And I don't think we can get social justice without actually having to pay for it. Some cost, probably financial actually, will be at the core of that, but other costs as well. And I'm aware, as we're unpacking this conversation, what there's this big trend that's kind of coming through, is this clash or contrast between what we define as kingdom values of patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, the values of the kingdom of God, where it's an alternate reality altogether. We're meant to live in quite a contradictory type of type of life to the life that's valued within the context of a secular narrative of economic growth and of consumption, of consumerism. There's a sense at some point there has to be 
a cognitive dissonance, a clash of ideas, and we must live or seek to live in an alternate way. For you personally, I suppose, um, obviously professionally you've been involved in organisations responding to global justice. Um, Andrew, you've been in South Asia, was it for 12 years? Central Asia. I'm thinking particularly what are some of the, the rhythms, practices that you've personally adopted in response to global circumstances? Yeah, this is, I guess it tracks back to what Joe was talking about, actually. Um, personally, I just, when I got to know Jesus, I was kind of hung up on obedience as a thing and just followed him. I know that sounds really obvious, but um, because of who he is and his heart, following him will lead to justice. Like, it just, he's not going to lead somewhere that doesn't have that as a priority. That's just who he is. He loves the poor and... And so it's been, it was interesting looking. So people would ask us, so, oh, man, you, that's amazing. You must really love Kazakhstan. They'd be like, well, not really. I mean, what does that mean? What does it mean to love Kazakhstan? Like, is that, are you talking about the, the, the trains? Are you talking about the, like, what is Kazakhstan? And, uh, you know, do, do we love our friends there? Yeah, we did. Um, but the reason we were there was because Jesus led us there. And then in, in following him, he changed our hearts. Um, and I think that, I think that's just the same. Like we we are. I mean, well, anyway, I'm quite a selfish person generally, and I need I need Jesus to lead me out of that um, to where He's going. So I think that so that's just an encouragement. Follow Him, and as Joe was saying, like you know, that might be through university to law, and then and looks like this. Wow, where, where how is that leading to justice? I've got a friend of mine who is an entrepreneur. And he is, uh, he, he's just really good at coffee and, and cafes, so he's a really good friend. But, um, uh, but, but he, was, he was kind of praying because he's like, he, I just love starting businesses and doing this stuff. And, and, and God just showed him uh, in, in prayer that, that the end of this road was going to be helping the poor. That though, though it, looked to, it would have looked to anyone else that, oh, you're just pursuing that consumeristic dream of producing lovely businesses to fund your... But it was like, no, no, Jesus has gifted him as an entrepreneur and he is leading him. And the end of that will be justice because it's following Jesus. Um, so so, that's, so that, that, I guess, is... I'm now, I've, I now live in leafy, leafy, annoying suburbia. You know, and I'm like, well, how, does the, how is this as a practice? Like, living here, how is this as a practice, seeking justice? And yet, and yet it's like, well, that's where Jesus wants me to be. Um... So that's so that so that to me is like because you know it's it's to to obey is better than sacrifice right you know one Samuel fifteen twenty two or whatever it is I mean that's at the core of it like and and Paul says without you know you can offer your body to the flames and you can give everything you have to the poor but if you don't have love it it doesn't make sense so 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 I think that's that's I mean as a personal practice I know that wasn't kind of maybe what you're but that's that's kind of the personal practice is like well follow Jesus um, and then eat less red beef I guess <laughs> I, I heard that I heard that apparently it takes a hundred thousand liters of water to make to make one one kilogram of um, grain-fed beef and that kind of messed me up that was two weeks ago I, I'm, I'm like I'm speaking to my wife I'm like babe we need to eat less meat so there you go two very practical things less meat and follow Jesus Um, another practice I was thinking about is that we can't do this and shouldn't do this as individuals. I think that we are part of a community 
and whatever that community might look like will be quite different for us. But I think, um, you know, a conference like this, for instance, is so great in bringing people together so that we can discover God's heart together as, as a community of believers. Um, but we all have our other, you know, networks and organisations, you know, like TIA and Interserve and IGM. And those of us who work in, in these areas are organisations who um, are dedicated to doing that and can help um, resource people. Our own churches, for instance, you know, we have to be part of a body of believers um, and certainly for those of us who are working overseas, you know, we need to be part of, of a local community where we can fight these battles together rather than try to work them all out on our own. And, and I think that's not, a, um, that's not a, a, uh, a, an option. I think that's an essential part of us actually being effective. Yeah, that just got me thinking about something... Um I think when I was um, a younger attender at Surrender and Soul Survivor and other festivals, I think I was a lot more impatient than I am now and have more of a sense of there are, there are seasons and, and put your heart in the right place and, and don't be lazy about it, but you don't, it's not all up to you and you don't have to do it all before you're 25. Um, and so if I could talk to the young Joe Knight, who would have been sitting right up the front taking notes, um, that would be something I would say, it's okay, you can, you know, there are different seasons and there will be different expressions. Um, and certainly something I'm, you know, I'm a mum of two young preschoolers and I'm very much aware that at different times of life you have different capacity and ability and so certainly in the advocacy that I coordinate in sort of campaigns trying to encourage people to be part of the movement for change focused on different issues to have different levels of accessibility and so we often um, at TIA sort of call them um, you could dip your toe in you could go knee deep or you could dive right in and they're very deliberately chosen not to be judgmental sounding things because at some seasons you're going to be diving right in and then you're going to need to go back to dip your toe in and then you're going to, you know, so it will depend. Um, so um, over on the, on the stand over here, there's um, Voices for Justice um, postcards, which is um, four days in Canberra, two days of worship and lobbying um, training and then two days of being set loose in the halls of parliament to lobby politicians. And that is an amazing transformative justice as worship experience that I'd encourage you all to, to try and take up if you can. Um, it's something we run annually in coalition um, with MICA, which we're, um, we're part of the coalition and there's a few others here at Surrender that are in the MICA coalition. That is a dive right in type of activity and so I make, I'm always keen to make sure that there's something that you could click on or do something in a, in a minute that is also joined up and powerful and we need enough people doing those smaller actions as well in a sort of coordinated campaign. Peter, I just want to draw out something that you said <coughs> about the idea of collaboration. Like, I think for a lot of us it's really relevant that we would attend or have attended churches at times that may have a global perspective but also may not. Um, and aware for some of us that may lead us to be frustrated or cynical or um, somewhat resentful towards the institution of church. I'm, I'm interested for all of you, how, how do we be people who remain faithful to the local church but also champion what it means to respond globally 
um, as a Christian? I realise I didn't add that question to your list that I sent you in an email two weeks ago, but hoping that you guys will be right to answer it. One of the themes that's been coming out in a number of sessions I've heard today is, is one of humility. And so I think we need to have a sense of humility um, and, and a willingness to listen to other voices around us, um, but to be part of a, um, a movement for change, but with humility in, involved in that, you know, because, you know, we don't know it all. <laughs> and, um, you know, and we all have a, a long way to go in that. I think another way is that we need to be open to listening to a whole range of voices. So uh, an example of that is when um, when Pru and I were in Egypt uh, as of a few months ago, we um, were involved with a number of different groups. So we would attend a Coptic Orthodox church, for instance. We would attend evangelical churches. We would be um, involved with a range of different uh, groups of people who can give us voices and input so we can get into their heads and understand what they're thinking um, so that we're, our perspective is broadened and so that we can remain humble in realising um, you know, what we don't know um, but also empowered because then we have um, a voice in those uh, communities as well. So I think that if we uh, um, approach it with humility but also a willingness to, to challenge our even our own churches and our systems in there, but with humility. I think that's one thing that goes a long way. I am a big believer in, in remaining in your church and, and lovingly changing your church. If, if you walk away and just gather with the tribe of people that agree with you, then your church will never be changed. And, and bring that humility and the persistence like the, the parable of the woman looking for the lost coin. Like if you value something and you, uh, you know, your heart is yearning for your local church that's not responding to the needs of those who are poor and marginalised and issues of justice in, in any way, then it, it maybe you have to come at it from lots of little different angles and different um, strategies, but keep persisting. So in one church context, it might be that um, it's a a sort of theological um, headspace sort of um, way that they might be moved. But for others, it might be something like a simulation game or some sort of experience to really cut their heart to understand. It might be coming at it through the creativity and the arts. It, it might be that there's something quite local and tangible that will start to move your local church. But for others, it, it'll be a different sort of issue. So trying to involve people and keep persisting if that's where your heart is then that that is a role you could play in your church community and don't don't give up yeah, yeah i just had from our experience i guess it's been a relationship and so you're moving it from a numbers thing to actually people and so i know when our church connected relationally with with us and then with kazakhstan it transformed the church because it wasn't oh those those injustices out there it's actually our name and face um context and also and also focus and so you move away from that overwhelming bandwidth issue to actually okay oh, this is what we're called to do yeah we could do that uh, and that would make a difference yeah thank you so i'm obviously aware that this is a big issue and kind of now we're just going to open to a time if you have any personal reflections or questions you'd like to ask these guys particularly what it looks like to respond from a point of faith
to our global circumstances. So, yeah, if you've got any questions, just yell them out. TJ might be able to answer this better, but I'll give it a go. I think it's it's understanding who might be the gatekeeper in that situation. So um, the pastor and the elders maybe, but also if there was others in the congregation that started to be really um, excited and inspired, then that could could be um, could be something. Um, one of the things I've done, so my, my husband's a pastor of a, a church and, and we sort of begun church planting that about two years ago. And we're um, in a sort of inner city area where there's no shortage of services um, doing stuff. And so we've been very slowly and trying to be very prayerfully um, learning and listening and almost um, doing an environmental map of what, what is the community, what are the strengths, um, where could be possible gaps and, and not rushing into the default of coming in with a solution, but it's starting with that heart and that yearning. Um, so, so prayer and um, group group prayer around um, starting to have that heart and those eyes to to see. And so, there's some homework in sort of doing some mapping and um, you know prayer walks in the area and those sort of things have been something that at my church has has been doing and we um, we've been valuing. So, so those can be sort of um, the beginnings of things, um, coming and um, listening to people that um, that might be able to give voice to to possible injustices or, or or gaps in the area could be could be a way. But um, prayer is certainly um, is a way, like a, a step towards I think greater involvement as well as um, incredibly powerful. Um, so so that might be a first step. I was thinking another step if you feel intimidated in raising that kind of thing with church leadership or you don't feel articulate enough to do that um, invite someone organize for someone who can speak at that level from outside you know someone from another organization who who shares the ideas that you want to um, to get across to come in and speak and do something at the church or speak to the leaders or get involved there you know the people out there would love to help as well Any other questions? Well, it's lucky I've got more, right? <laughs> um, well, just pages of questions. They're just going to be here for ages, like hours. Um, now, what we'll do is I've got probably two big ones that I'd, li I'd like to finish on. And then if you have further questions, these guys, uh, I'm sure they're not rushing off and be happy. Well, they may be rushing off, but I'm sure... They'll be happy to chat with you after the session. The idea is that these conversations continue outside of a formal space. And I think that's one of the, the most brilliant things about Surrender. But I'm aware, like within my own journey, there's this longing to respond to things that I see as un unjust. As I understand God more, as I meet with God more and I get a sense of his great love for the world, 
I get this deep conviction that I have to do something. And I think there's a danger um, of me potentially running into spaces that my response could potentially be unhelpful. So I'm wondering if you could reflect on how do we channel the good intention while also keeping in mind good practice in response to global issues. Um, yeah, speaking organisationally, uh, I think quite quite proud of how IJM works, I guess, if that's the appropriate word. Um, so 96% of our staff are local to the countries in which they work and everything that we do is in collaboration with local justice systems. Um, and that strikes me as quite unusual. Uh, so we had a, a really significant victory last week, which was that the Philippine government agreed to entirely fund a national anti-trafficking unit, which was something that came out of our work in Cebu and then got a regional level and then went to a national level. But rather than NGOs or paying for that, it's the government paying for that. And that's just huge. So that moves it from something that could teeter on funding <laughs> to actually know it's it's got national backing. And so so we're, we are about seeing justice systems restored and strengthened, and that's sustainable. And so, so rather than aftercare even to being put out to an NGO again that's dependent on funding drops or um, inflation, um, we work in partnership. We, we try to get those that aftercare facility to link in with the government again. So um, I think, and I think, and in terms of that, rather than uh, Westerners coming in with the answers, <laughs> some sort of a, on a white horse with a unique civil society solution to a problem, actually, if you came to our offices, you would see local lawyers with local authorities enforcing local laws. And so that to me is just very good development practice, so. Yeah. Hey, can I back that up um, both internationally and here in Australia too? Um, one of the core values that we also work with in InterServe is working with local people. We, we only work within the local context. We never come in um, saying that we know it all and want to change systems from outside. Um, and particularly working with local Christians, we only work in majority non-Christian countries. And so we want to work with local Christians who have the voices in there um, and are able to, uh, to do way better than us at identifying the systems that need challenging and identifying the solutions to that. Um, and I think that the same thing should occur here in Australia, that there, there are voices within our communities that we should listen to and engage with and get involved with just at a grassroots level um, who can really help us you know, get into that headspace and to learn what we need to learn in order to, to put those good intentions into good practice. Um, so I would agree that I think, I think that's probably to me the most important one actually is, is to be engaging with the people who are really at, those, uh, really at the grassroots, whether it be here or overseas. Sure. Um, yeah, I agree with all those things you were saying about local partners and that's very much um, characterises TIO's work overseas. But it does also characterise the way we do work in Australia. So um, in terms of good practice and taking good intentions into good practice that will actually make a helpful 
lasting difference. Um, that probably relates best to TIA's work with coalitions. So, so one of the sort of, um, I guess, big trends or, or big sort of things that people have been talking about in sort of what it means to sort of bring change in sort of advocacy and change is, is to go from um, shallow engagement where you might get um, a huge number of people mobilised and showing out for something to that deeper lasting change. So I'll give an example from Egypt actually and you think of the Arab Spring and not just Egypt but where you saw huge numbers of people all of a sudden turning out for a moment, an all-in moment. But just as quickly people dispersed. And without getting into the details of the Middle East, bringing it back to Australia, you, you'll see people all on online petitions or different things, all-in moments, big numbers. But then that's not deep power that can actually shift systems because that disperses just as quickly as it um, gathered. So one of the things about good practice and advocacy and creating change is how do you work in partnerships and coalitions? How do you coordinate and harness that interest of people into groups, into grassroots actions, into bite-sized pieces of work that local groups could take and work on and coordinate and amplify that longer, deeper change. So that's, that's why we work in coalition. That's also why we have things like tier groups around the country. Um, that sort of deeper change to shift these pretty stubborn systems of injustice. I'll just mention one addition to go, that, go, go, just to, to take that a, a step further too, is to say that I think that whole idea of bringing long-term change should actually be our goal all the time, that we should be identifying things that, that keep us in there for the long haul, because none of these things actually happen quickly and easily, really, and it's very easy to get discouraged, uh, I know, but, um, but it, it's only long-term engagement that will bring the change, and that's what we need to expect out of all of this, you know, it's not just a short thing. Yeah, and that's, that, I think that's a perfect way to kind of finish up. I kind of reflect on the stories that you've shared today. And I'm, I'm aware as we engage with a global environment, it seems quite hopeless at times. Um, it can be quite demoralizing um, and actually can be difficult to keep engaging with time and time again, especially in the face of numerous defeats. Um, how do you remain hopeful? It's for tomorrow, right? I mean, that's... It's good. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, no I, it. you're in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right. I get, I, I get a free try or something, yeah. right? For um, life. Yeah, I, I, do, I do think... Um, I, yeah, I have been reflecting on reading some N.T. Wright recently, um, who I love. Um, but he talks, he talks a lot about the, the, the restoration of all things. And the, just at the, end, at the end, God will... This, this earth is not actually going to be burnt up. It's going to be renewed, and there's going to be new earth, new heavens. And you can talk to me about that later if you disagree with me. But, um, but that, that is, and, he, and all of that stems out of the victory that Jesus won on the cross. And so really, no, no matter how dark things seem, we know, the good guys win in the end, right? Like it's, it's just, and I think Martin Luther King or something said this, it's the, what is the, it's the long arc, that, yeah? arc of history, but it bends toward justice. It's how it is. It's how it is. Um, and so I think, I, and I think in our, you know, in our work, particularly like we're, we're combating some of the darkest stuff on the planet, 
Um, some of that can be incredibly hard, particularly where we're just starting to combat the online sexual exploitation of children. And it's really dark. It's kind of the darkest stuff that I've encountered. And uh, our office uh, in Cebu has, has on the wall, it has um, this picture of, of a lion with a, with a cross over it, um, a bear with a cross over it, and then, and then a, large, a large picture of Goliath and a little, a little guy with a slingshot called IJM Cebu. And, uh, and basically, the, the, you guys would know the story of David. It's like, well, he says, faced with Goliath, he says, well, God enabled me to take the bear out. God enabled me to take the lion out. So God will enable me to take down Goliath. And so as, a, as an organization facing real darkness, we, we kind of lean back on our history of the faithfulness of God and his victory and then, and then continue to hope. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing, uh, certainly about um, the, the fact that in the end there will be justice one way or the other. I think that, that was one of the things that sustained us. You know, it's, it's pretty hard to live anywhere in the Middle East today and actually feel much hope that anything's getting better, actually, at all. And, um, you know, we spent a lot of time being discouraged and feeling discouraged, at least at an emotional level. Um, but the only way that we could see through that is to know that that justice will prevail in the end, no matter what. Um, and uh, I think the other thing too, which obviously connects with that very much, is that isn't the gospel all about hope? You know, that's that's what it's all about, and uh, it's the only thing we've got to cling to, really. I, I can feel completeness, completeness, but I don't think I'll add anything. But yeah. Um, it, it ultimately can, you know, with that faith in God, ultimately taking care of things and and being the arbiter of justice, then it comes down to what is the part that you play mm. and and that you will be answerable for that. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, guys. Well, guys, I really appreciate your time. Why don't we just thank them quickly as we finish. Um, and I really encourage, I really encourage you and... and us up here just to continue that posture of learning and, and connecting with organisations like IJM and Interservantia, connecting with a community that you can kind of go on this journey together with because it can be incredibly isolating and it's not sustainable in isolation. And actually, we need to continue to champion, support, encourage one another as we seek to live out the kingdom of God, as we seek to do justice, you know. Um, whether that be in our local context here, within the context of our local church, or how we connect with our global context. Um, it's really, really important that we do that together. Um, so I might just pray to close, um, and then we can enjoy the faint glimmer of sun that seems to have appeared at the end of the day. God, we um, firstly thank you that you're a present God, that you dwell in the midst of this world, um, that you're a God who's just and merciful and kind and that you have a great love for those who are uh, forgotten or lost, those who are marginalised or alienated from communities in this world. Lord God, we pray that we may adopt postures, practices and principles that express your heart, um, that come from a real intimate meeting with you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to find places where we can journey together. 
support one another, encourage one another. So we want to thank you for the great privileges to share this in a theoretical dialogue today. We pray, Lord God, also you will help us to seek those moments where we put that into practice um, in the day-to-day messiness of life. Um, In your name, amen. This was one of many conversations recorded live at Surrender 16. We hope you found this podcast inspiring and thought-provoking. Please check in with us at surrender.org.au for more resources and opportunities to engage and connect with our wider movement.